Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 51 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry. Today's episode needs a little bit of explaining before we can get started. This is the first ever debate episode, and it will be co-hosted by a good friend of mine named Andrew Morrow. Now, early on in the year, I started posting a weekly debate topic on Wednesdays at the Clarinet community on Facebook. If you're not familiar with this, I'd invite you to join at www.clarinet.com group. I was really surprised by the amount of feedback that these posts were getting, and I thought they were raising some really insightful concerns and questions and, and just amazing conversation that was not really being had anywhere else in, in such a productive way anyways. Anyhow, Andrew and I were arguing and discussing these topics one morning before uh, a workshop that we were doing at a school, and suddenly it hit me that this would be a great way to bring these types of conversations to the podcast. Andrew and I have been sort of bantering and arguing and discussing things back and forth all through undergrad and when he was doing his master's, and it's just something that seems so natural to bring to the Clarinet audience. So I hope you you enjoy this episode, which is co-hosted, as I mentioned, by Andrew Morrow, who will provide some more information about himself in just a moment in the episode. And as I mentioned, please do feel welcome to come join the Clarinet community on Facebook at www.clarinet.com group. Today's episode was brought to you by our sponsor, Daddario Woodwinds. Thank you so much for listening. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds. So I'm here today with Andrew Morrow, who is a clarinetist and bass clarinetist in Calgary, Alberta. And he's going to be joining me once a month on the Clarinet podcast here to discuss all the items that were mentioned in the debate Wednesday. Thanks for joining me, Andrew. Well, thanks for having me, Sean. So the four topics we'd like to discuss today are which direction should one pull the swab and whether this actually matters. Um, does key plating make a difference to the clarinet as far as sound, feel or anything else? Um, do you humidify your clarinet? And if so, how? And if, if not, why not? And what do you think about individually wrapped reeds? Before we dive into all that, though, Andrew, would you tell us a bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, I'm a freelance uh, clarinetist here in Calgary, and I do a little bit of whatever comes my way. So playing in pickup orchestras, uh, like the occasional concert band thing, uh, lots of teaching, and uh, occasionally I make excursions into the pop music world and play with uh, country or rock bands and do the occasional recording session. And uh, my biggest project I have going on right now is uh, a contemporary music ensemble called Time Point. You're also a founding member of uh, an orchestra that's that's playing in smaller cities around Calgary now, aren't you? Oh, yes. The uh, Rocky Mountain Symphony Orchestra. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really brilliant idea. The... Um, we go out to all these little satellite towns around Calgary and do a, uh, with a bunch of yeah, pros from out of Calgary and play a shorter, usually uh, concert of usually your most popular orchestral works. 
And uh, but the really cool thing about that is like if you live in Turner Valley, you're about a 30 minute drive from the edge of the city. So you're looking at about maybe 90 minutes to get downtown if you want to go see the Calgary Philharmonic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that show starts at eight. It's maybe done at the earliest 1030 you're getting in your car, if not closer to 11. And then, you know, it's now, you know, by the time you get out of downtown, that's half an hour and then another hour drive home. You know, you're rolling into your driveway in Turner Valley at midnight, 1230. You know, so you guys are just, kind of, you're kind of trying to take the music to them then make it easier. Yeah. And so far, um, it's been a like runaway success. Uh, I think every concert we've had out of town has sold out or we've had to add more seats and chairs and tickets. So it's, uh, yeah, it, people out in these little towns are, have been uh, extremely receptive to the orchestra. Awesome. And so we've been, you know, actively <laughs> going back and forth about the debate topics that have been posted every week in the the community there. And I think you actually even submitted a couple of the, the questions, which was really great. Before we get started, I do want to just say that we're, we're both going to try and sort of play devil's advocate for all the opinions possible. And um, any of the opinions expressed don't necessarily represent even our own opinions, as strange as that may sound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're just trying. I'm just taking a lot of the comments that, that were sort of brought up and trying to sort of flesh those out and, and bring a little bit of light to the the conversation. So, Let's talk about the first topic there, which was which direction one should pull the swab and whether or not this actually matters. The way I was first taught to play clarinet was just to pull it through the top um, and pull it out towards the end of the clarinet. And I originally didn't think that it mattered. But over the years, people told me to to turn it the other way. How were you taught, Andrew? Um, I don't really think I was, but I remember, um, I would always, when I was younger, pull the swab through the bell end. Cause it just like from the, like starting, like drop it through the bell and pull it out the barrel. Cause it just makes sense. Cause it's shaped like a funnel. Uh, yeah, absolutely. and then I heard that the, like, uh, maybe 10 years ago, I heard that the principal clarinetist for the, uh, OSM keeps his clarinet either perfectly vertical or at the angle that he's playing it. And he never likes flips it around and spins it over and does all like for his swab simply so that he doesn't get spit in the keys. Well, and I think th that's fairly logical to me. And that, that was what was brought up by several people actually was trying to ensure that the, the, the moisture doesn't move in the instrument. So when you spin it around upside down to put the, um, the, the swab into the, the barrel, or sorry, into the, the bell, then wouldn't all the moisture move and shift around? Yeah, and that's that was just like I just read somewhere that that's how the you get spit in your uh, tone holes, or mm -hmm. it's a way to really increase the chances of getting spit in your tone holes. So that makes sense to me. But what also makes sense to me was another argument that was brought up, and that was that you don't want to pull the moisture into new areas of the clarinet. So by pulling through the bell as the swab comes through the instrument, it takes it kind of out the way it came. Oh, right. I see. Yeah. So. I mean, that's what's strange is both of these make sense to me. Um, and so I start to wonder from an, you know, an actual day to day use perspective, though, does this really, really make a difference? Yeah. What do you the think? The other thing I had heard is that um, so on the inside of your register key, there's mm -hmm. a, a big metal post going into your clarinet. And someone had told me once, and I kind of use this to scare really young clarinet players, <laughs> um, is that if they break that you might as well just throw your clarinet in the garbage because a new clarinet costs less than replacing that. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. That was just something I had heard at one point. 
but going through the top would also stop young clarinet players' swaps from getting stuck. Now, I believe uh, on the in the debate, uh, one of the commenters, a dean, said just get a silk swab, which solves that problem. Which mm. she is right, but you know the number of clarinet care kits that come with that really thick cotton swab that just gets stuck all the time. You know? Yeah, I mean, this this brings up another you know area of concern, which is that the the type of swab, um, and I do agree that that matters for sure. I mean, when you have those ones that are extremely um, thick, it, I don't know what that material even is. It's like a, but it's like a quarter of an inch thick sometimes. Yeah, it's kind of like a a piece of a sham wow or something. Yeah, it's it's crazy, and and there's those ones too that are shaped kind of like a letter H. Is that the ones you're talking about? It's oh, like a really. Yeah. Th- no, there's also those ones. I was thinking about just like the big square. Mm. Uh, fu- well, I guess they're not even that big. They're actually quite small, but they're extremely thick. The fuzzy ones. Yeah. But then, yeah. Then there's also the, the like weird plastic spongy ones that are shaped like an H. And, and, you know, a lot of those swabs come with and this became another issue of contention on the conversation wall. There was the little metal piece that's not covered up by any cloth to, to weight the swab into the instrument. Those are terrible because, of course, they just scratch the inside the oh, whole yeah. way. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess back to like if we assume we use a proper swab that's of a good material with a covered weighted end. um, Some people were saying that what might happen is over time, kind of like, you know, waves on the the shoreline that making the sand over over time, pulling the uh, swab through the entire instrument might result in sort of taking away bits of wood. And that would be another argument for pulling through the bell is so that the compression happens inside kind of a gradient funnel, like you were saying, instead of at the actual entrance to the bore at the barrel. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. uh, I mean, I heard, uh, I had actually talked about this very uh, topic with my teacher, former teacher, Stan, and that he had, uh, he's actually seen a couple barrels that have had the sides eroded away from years of use. And uh, I remember I got my, when I got my bass clarinet, it was from a repair guy in Denmark. Uh, I think it was Loaf and Pfeiffer. And mm-hmm. the uh, the one guy there was saying, like, always stand your bass clarinet up. Like, when it's in its case, don't let the case down. Stand it up. Because over, like, 30 years, which, I mean, it's a really long time. But over 30 years, your bore stops being round and it becomes more uh, ovalic. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, and then it affects your tuning. So, so this but, is an actual concern then, though. But but my, my thought, though, is, okay, so the the swab's going to take material away at the the entrance to the, the bore at the barrel, but why wouldn't this happen along the full length of the tube? And maybe it does. Oh, yeah, they could. That is, I didn't even think about that. So, yeah, someone did actually mention this, and I hadn't thought about it either, but there was one comment on here, and I'm, I can't remember who the repair person was, um, but they had actually advised or mentioned that to never swab the instrument, that it can, the the moisture will evaporate. And anytime you swab it, you take a little bit of material with it. So, huh. So I think the uh, moral is just don't swab your clarinet. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure exactly where it goes. And I I was really surprised by the sheer number of conversation points that were, were brought up about this. And I would, I would really love it if someone who is a skilled repair person would, would chime in about this and, and write, um, writes their thoughts um, either on the Clarinet community or by contacting me directly at feedback at clarinet.com. 
Do you have any other thoughts on that issue before we move on, Andrew? Uh, no, I just want to say that, like, I'm I'm personally really torn on this, and I've, every time <laughs> I saw my clarinet, I've been like, oh man, should I start doing it the other way? You know, it's funny you say that because now I find I go to a clinic to teach to teach, uh, you know, beginner students and I get a bit of anxiety about this issue, which is so weird. (laughs) And even every time I swab my own clarinet, I'm like, well, should I swab it through? I've been swabbing it through the bell now always because I I agree that there's probably issues with the the entrance to the the, um, at the barrel there. But I also see the point about. Um, moving the water around that doesn't need to go. And I also am very curious about this whole concept of changing the bore size over time anyways. And and you know what? One more thing is that if it causes damage at the entrance at the barrel, wouldn't it cause damage to the inside of the tone holes where they're undercut? Yeah, actually, it absolutely would. So that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. One thing's for sure, though. I think that everyone agrees to avoid those those type of uh, pad saver things that go in and just basically oh rot, yeah rot uh, inside the clarinet i've heard uh, i had a teacher who called them shovets because um, <laughs> of where you should shove it if you have those, <laughs> which is right into the garbage because those are terrible right into the clarinet. garbage <laughs> yeah so the next topic of discussion the following week was does key plating make a difference and i didn't really specify whether i was talking about the sound or the the feel um um, no one actually chimed in saying that the sound would be different. Um, I'm pretty glad about that because I, I can't really imagine that it, that, that it can be. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I imagine for a metal instrument um, where like the metal is the resonant body, like a trumpet or a saxophone, mm-hmm. um, then the plating, I mean, it would make sense for it to make a difference because that's the actual thing that's vibrating. Um, whereas with the clarinet, I think it's the wood that's the resonant body. And even though the metal might be contributing a bit to that, I don't think the plating would be uh, have as much of an impact as the actual metal that the pieces are made out of. Well, and of course, it's different than the plating of like the ligature because that's having a direct contact with the reed, yeah. which is obviously um, associated with the response and the resonance of the instrument. I, I I would love to see some sort of tests as far as like a a sonogram or whatever to show the the um, the peaks in the overtone response or something like that just to see is the sound objectively changing with different kinds of things like this and maybe that's something we should have here on clarinet is some sort of like scientific <laughs> yeah I episode remember go into a, a lab or something at the uc there was this weird egg-shaped um sonic like measurement device in mm. the room that i took my lessons at and my teacher, I was like, what, the, what is that thing? And he's like, oh, it's this weird thing. It measures all of the like resonant frequencies of whatever you put in there. So like, if you could put a reed in there and make it vibrate, you'd have like a complete computer readout of every characteristic of that reed vibrating. But wow. you wouldn't, you can't, anyway, I think they use it for other stuff because you can well, be able to get the reed to vibrate in there. Yeah, I'd like to compare that and also sort of the materials clarinets are made out of. And that might be another sort of topic of debate. Um, with the plating though, I, I do feel that the, the feel of the metals makes a big difference for me anyways. I really prefer silver. Um, yeah. The, the feel of silver to nickel. I've never actually owned a gold clarinet. Um, so I wouldn't have any direct experience with that, but which plating do you prefer? Uh, I also prefer silver. Um, I think it, it, well, I mean the feel of it, yes. And also the look of it, which I realize is kind of shallow, but you know, uh, a silver <laughs> instrument t- looks more professional than like, and you know, you know, you want your instrument to look good as well as sound good. 
when you're on stage. I mean, maybe you don't, right? But yeah, you know, you know so many people always say, oh, it's not about the look, it's about the sound. But, I, you know, why can't it be both? I mean, you're going to worry about how your shoes are polished before the gig or whether or not you have a nice tie on. I mean, maybe right. you should worry about how your instrument looks too, to, yeah. to some extent. Like, I know it's not the most important thing, but... Yeah, um, at least clean the water spots off of it, you know? Yeah, give it a nice, you know... Uh, get a polishing cloth and clean it up once a week or something like that. But, you know, the silver, one other benefit is, although it does tarnish, it's much easier to return silver to its original um, sort of glory than it is nickel. Oh, okay. Yeah, what about gold? I don't know about gold. I think that gold is similar to silver, but gold actually doesn't tarnish. That's an interesting, um, oh. an interesting thought. But I wonder how the gold feels after playing any length of time with it. Like I said, I've briefly experimented with it at clarinet festivals and stuff, but I've never actually owned a golden instrument. So I wonder wonder if the maintenance is a bit less on it. Perhaps. Everyone that I've met who's had a gold instrument, which I've come to think of it, it's all been oboe players. Um, They always say that they have uh, an allergy to the silver. And so it reacts poorly with their fingers and and gives them a rash and the gold Mm. doesn't. But we had one uh, commenter, Anthony Rodriguez, who said he prefers silver because he's actually allergic to nickel, which yes, is pretty I actually had a, uh, I got contacted today. Um, someone's running a Kickstarter campaign for a young student who um, either needs to quit band because he's allergic to the nickel or needs to be able to purchase a silver instrument but the the family can't afford it or something and i thought that was so interesting because i'd actually never considered the allergy aspect of it yeah that's that's the only experience i've had with gold clarinets other than you know you see the occasional gold-plated clarinet in the store and you think oh that's just ridiculous you know well well you know one other element that might be worth considering is the well obviously the price i mean the price goes up considerably for gold but what about the weight like i wonder if the densities of these platings actually affect the resulting weight in any meaningful way oh yeah because i mean i wonder and that would probably change from brand to brand because you know i mean i don't i i mean it would be easy enough to look up which weighs more gold or silver yeah you know, for density but the amount of plating for example or the number of keys or yeah maybe if you plate it in gold you actually need less of the actual gold to go into the plating well some people brought up other platings um there's also like rose gold um, there's unplated, apparently some oh, instruments, well, I think it's very rare. Um, but you know, regarding the weight thing, there used to be entirely metal clarinets, right? Yeah. So don't you have an entirely metal clarinet? No, I don't actually. Oh, I, I wish I did. <laughs> yeah. I look on, I look for them on eBay every now and then to see if, you know, if the price is right. Yeah. I would love to have one even just to, you know, just to, for fun. Yeah. I mean, I'd probably spend a hundred bucks on a, on one easily. So Lucas here in the comments says silver is slightly heavier. Um, so that would solve that oh, sort, okay. of, sort of question. I, and you know, that does make sense, obviously. I mean, the more dense the material, the heavier it is. And, you know, I've, it, one thing I've always found funny is that people who sort of do complain about the weight, often the thing that gets complained about the most is that left hand E flat lever. Um, I'd love to have a debate Wednesday about that, actually. Oh, um, yeah, that'd be a good one. You know, it adds a little bit of extra weight. And, you know, by the time you've gone maybe to silver, heavily plated silver keys and a really quality wood body. I mean, maybe we are talking some. We, well, I know that we are talking, you know, those extra ounces add up. And oh, yeah. Where, where do they go? They go straight to your thumb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if you have a green line as well, uh, one of the buffet 
uh, fancy plastic clarinets. Mm-hmm. I, I shouldn't say fancy plastic because I'm sure there's a super lockdown trade secret as to the secret behind those. But um, those weigh significantly more than a wooden clarinet. Yeah, but those who play them love them. I mean, you own a buffet green line, don't you? Yeah, I do. And I, um, which this is going to come up in a later uh, debate topic today, but I quite like it uh, here in Alberta. Yes, yes. I, I've been in some situations like, uh, oh, I did one gig with a country singer who like came into town like an hour before the gig and he like, he told me what songs we were doing. And, but you know, like, you know how some of these like pop guys are just like, yeah, here are the chords. Let's just go on stage and do it. Right. But, and you know, yeah. <laughs> it's a little hard for us classically trained guys. So I was like, yeah, can we at least like run it first? And so we ended up running like the three songs in the alley behind the ship and anchor, like under a little overhang while it was pouring rain. And I was like, man, I'm really glad I have my green line clarinet today. Yeah. You know, the anxiety that that would even cause. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh man, I couldn't imagine like, if I've, well, I mean, I've done gigs where it's outside and it's like, uh, oh, it was one playing in C with time point. And I was like, well, I'll bring my bass clarinet, but if the weather's cold, I'm playing my little clarinet. And the weather was cold and was like, well, I'm really glad I didn't like that. I brought my green line. You know, I'm just rifling through the comments here on the the Facebook page. I came across an odd one I wish I'd asked about earlier. Are you, are you looking at the same page I am right now trying to I believe so. peruse through these? Anders down at the bottom says, I would love to have my Ridenauer clarinets replated with gold because silver can't be used with hard rubber. What? I wonder why not. Oh, that's weird. What? That is really interesting. What What part of his clarinet would be hard rubber? Would, oh, the Ridenauer clarinets are made of hard rubber. Oh, like the, the body of the clarinet? Yeah, I believe so. The whole thing. Oh, okay. So he also says something which we haven't brought up, which is the skin kind of, uh, or sorry, not skin, the oils on the skin. Um, break down the nickel plating pretty quickly. And you know what? You're just talking about they're outside in the rain. This kind of made me think of that too, is that that is just going to be a nightmare from a cleaning perspective. But that also is going to ruin your pads no matter which kind of clarinet you have, no? Uh, yeah, the um, the marching band that I teach, uh, the, the clarinets there, I believe they all have nickel keys. Um, mm-hmm. And dirt clarinets go through hell and back every summer. Yeah. But, Another comment uh, here says that uh, Peter says he wore through the silver on his instruments. I've never seen that personally, but yeah, I imagine it can I mean, happen. I don't. I think it depends on how oily your skin is because I never really polished my silver all that diligently on my clarinets. Um, mm-hmm. And they, the only thing that's tarnished for me is my mouthpiece cap, um, and everything else is fine. And I like I'm really bad about polishing them. And yeah, my clarinet's almost 15 years old now, and it 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 you know doesn't look brand new but if i give it a polish it comes back it's not actually wearing through anywhere so yeah so i think it it might be because of the oil in your skin or maybe it's because we live in like a colder climate so we're not as sweaty when we're playing yeah well i think you know michael lonestern actually mentioned that he got his brand new uh his new selmer instrument that has the the stealth clarinet. yeah the stealth it's all black he said he actually went with a matte finish that is is kind of it's not really um it's not smooth. It's it's not quite textured, but it's like a matte finish, sort of like you'd find on. I'm trying to think of an example here, but it's it's uh it has like a, a texture to it. Huh. And I thought that was very interesting, actually, because I would like that because that's what I like about silver is kind of how I feel my sti- fingers sticking to it a little bit more. Yeah, um, absolutely. There was one thing that was brought up here. I can't find it at the moment, but they talked about the strength of the 
the keys. Now, I don't know if the plating has that big of an effect on the like how easily the keys bend. Yeah, wouldn't that be more of the alloy inside? Yeah, because, you know, like, I know with my buffet clarinets, if I want to, like, bend a key, I got to, like, put it against my desk and put my whole body weight into it just to get it to move, like, half a millimeter. Mm-hmm. But there's some, like, student clarinets where you grab where you're like, all right, let me look at your clarinet. And you're like, whoa, you smashed into the door with this, didn't you? And you're like, all right, well, let me just bend, you know, this key, you know, bend the F key back 30 degrees and, you know, stuff like bend that. all over the place, yeah. Yeah, and then you just bend them with your hand, and it's like, it shouldn't be that easy to bend, but... I wonder if the plating would have an effect on that. There are way more comments here than I realized about the allergy. Yeah, that's that a, seems it seems to be the most common uh, thing. Yeah, that's really interesting. With, I never would have thought it was that big of a consideration. I wonder why few companies then, well, maybe because of price, but you'd think there'd be some student clarinet offerings with different platings on them or like a rubberized outer coating or something. Yeah. To prevent, huh. Huh. I wonder. I wonder how common it is. Well, uh, I mean, I'd say a third of the, a third of the questions on here, maybe a quarter, or sorry, comments. People are bringing that up. So, yeah, very but, interesting. Uh, I'm just doing, trying to do a little quick uh, Google search to get a bit more information about the allergy, and it comes up as a jewelry a- allergy. And so, just like the first thing this article is talking about is uh, the use of nickel, silver, and gold in jewelry hmm. so it's yeah uh less expensive jewelry nickel is the base metal and then it's plated with gold or silver and many people believe they're allergic to gold or silver but they're actually allergic to the nickel that it's made out of ah so the cheaper jewelry is made with kind of a, a bit of nickel mixed in yeah yeah like the base metal is nickel and then they just coat it with either silver or gold and hmm. according to this article it's um yeah, people get a rash, but it's from the nickel, not from the gold or the silver. So wait, uh, I wonder if the, the, the barrier of plating is enough then for people with the allergy. Yeah, so maybe it's that they had a, a clarinet that didn't have enough um, silver on it. Or uh, see what it says here. Um, well, allergies can be pretty severe. I mean, there's people who can't even have a an iota of peanut butter. Oh, I mean, yeah. It's, it's not like just disguising with jam is going to make that go away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I wonder about the plating. This if, if someone could, again, chime in about this. If you have sort of a thought or some experience with with this, please share. I'm, I'm really interested in that. Yeah. So, oh, when it comes to the gold, uh, it'd be interesting how many carrots are um, used in the gold plating. It's like um, I found a little chart here. And so mm-hmm. 24 karat is considered pure gold, or which is 99.9% gold. Then 18 karat is 75, 12 karat is 50, and 9 karat is 37.5%. So it'd be so interesting. What's, what's the other metal that's mixed in with it? Um, you know, I don't know. Let's see. Because that might be, you know, also an issue, right? I, I don't know. Yeah, gold can be alloyed with many different types of metals, which alter its hardness, color, and other properties. So it might be alloyed with silver, copper, or uh, white gold is usually alloyed with nickel. Ah. Yeah, rhodium, uh, which is similar to platinum, is used as well. Hmm. I wonder how the pink gold is, or the rose gold, sorry. is. Oh, yeah. So interesting topic. I would talk to a jeweler or something. Yeah, because they would know, yeah, like a really advanced jeweler would have a lot, probably know a lot about uh, metal allergies. Yeah, and how this affects the the instruments. So I'm gonna look in. I'm trying to think of someone who I could contact maybe for a full episode about like plating and 
at this kind of thing. I think that'd be a really interesting topic. Oh. So. Yeah, that would be good. Do you know um, Walter Grabner? Yeah. Yeah, he would, uh, not specifically about plating, but he might be a good uh, guest to have on. Yeah, I think um, John Weir out in Toronto does plating too, so he oh, might be, he yeah. might know. That might be good. So. so let's move on to the third topic here, and this is especially relevant at this time of year. Um, the third debate topic was, do you humidify your clarinet, and if so, how? Um, I was really surprised by the number of answers because based on how you hear companies talking about humidifying instruments, you'd think it was something everyone was really diligent about, but a lot of people sort of came out and, and kind of mentioned that they, they didn't bother, um, or didn't really worry about it too much or just sort of threw some orange peels in and hoped for the best. But, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I've, um, I humidify my bass clarinet. It has, um, it has this little, the buffet case has this little, slot in it for a this like weird stuff it style cleaning swallow yeah but which is kind of silly and it kind of gets gross and then you know what the little pieces of fluff come off and they get caught in your pads and you're like <laughs> figuring out where's this leak coming from and um two uh like string base um humidifiers you know those green ones with the yellow sponge inside that like every string player uses yeah so two of those fit perfectly inside my bass clarinet case and so I keep those in there with a the humidifier. And I, I mean, when I first got my bass clarinet, I humidified it a lot. Like, and I was constantly paying attention to it and it did eventually crack a little bit. But, mm. um, the nice thing about when it, where it cracked is it cracked off of the, uh, set the hole for the register key that's in the wood, which is the only pressure fitted hole or only pressure fitted key on the entire bass clarinet. So if it is going to crack, it's going to be right there. And then the other benefit with the bass clarinet is the wood is so thick and so dense that it's, um, it's unbelievably rare for a crack to go all the way through. But um, yeah, so I don't I don't humidify it as much as I do oil it regularly. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I went to a, a presentation this summer at Clarinet Fest. Um, I think it was the company's called Lomax Cases, and and he was insisting that if you can bring your clarinet back to proper humidity after a long time of not humidifying it you'll actually get better response out of the instrument because it changes shape as it dries out, right? Or becomes uh-huh. over humidified. And his product, actually, I found really interesting. The over humidity is something I'd never considered very much in, in Calgary here. I mean, we have humidity levels like 15, 20% in the winter time. Yeah. Really, really low. But there's other parts of the world where it's so humid that the opposite problems occur, right? So you actually have to dehumidify your instrument. That would have never occurred to me. Yeah, so there's actually a product now, um, and I just got sent one by Diderio to try, actually. They use them for guitars, and what they are is they're a little pack that some, if it needs to give off humidity, it does that, but it also has the ability to take humidity. So it controls the exact humidity level for your instrument, um, which I thought was pretty cool. Me, for example, I, I... was not very good about this in my university days, to be honest. I, I would sort of, I was off and on with my humidifying efforts. And unfortunately that led to a crack. I mean, but yeah, I would also I just sort of, definitely would. yeah, well, the temperatures here too, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you go from a warm room to a cold room and you start playing your clarinet or if you, you get out of your car and it's minus 30 and get yeah. your rehearsal, throw your clarinet together. Well, and I feel like the only thing worse than not humidifying or humidifying, um, to the wrong humidity or something is doing it like uh, kind of willy nilly and every once in a while, you know, cause oh, it's, yeah. it's going through such harsh changes, you know, up to 70% with, a, with too many orange peels and then drying out over two weeks. Like you got to stay on top of it. 
Yeah. Um, one thing that I found in Alberta is because it's so dry here that the um, the wood basically shrinks over time, which is why yes. all of our clarinets are so sharp around here. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. It's another theory I have heard. And so I wonder if humidifying would stop your clarinet from shrinking. Because, I mean, even if it shrinks like... Well, that was Lomax's argument. Yeah, he said that, you know, if your clarinet is is either too humid or not humid enough, it's going to be changing shape. Just it's just the it's just how it works. You know, it also be changing density, I I believe. And and uh, but he said if you, you know, use one of his products, which, you know, his product is basically an air sealed case, which allows you to get longer life out of these revitalizer packs from I believe he uses the ones from D'Addario. But uh it will actually really improve any instrument. And you can take an old instrument, well, he was saying anyways, you can take an old instrument that has been really neglected and sort of return it to health with this product. And I thought that was a compelling thing. I I feel like I want to try it with my clarinets. Yeah, this is interesting. I'm actually, I'm looking at his cases right now and his, um, he sells a triple case, which is what I've kind of been looking for for a while. One that holds Mm -hmm. my bass clarinet, my A and my B flat, just, you know, if I so I can go to a gig and carry one case, it would just be nice to do that. Especially since my buffet bass clarinet case is falling apart and my BAM clarinet case uh, is falling apart. And his price is reasonable. I mean, it's certainly less than the Wiseman cases. So well, I'm, he also has some models with a compelling feature. Now, I believe I'm talking about the right company. Um, yeah, but it has a plug, and you can it warms the case to a certain temperature. Uh, over over a couple of hours but I think that the real miss with that product and what I'd love to see come from that product is one you can plug into your car so you take the case into the car Uh. and it keeps it at room temperature even if the car is colder or warmer than I don't think it air conditions the case actually but it does heat it up they even make a a, a heated stand that goes over the clarinet so it'll stay at the right tuning yeah yeah it's really neat so oh man I've, I've heard of people putting you know like those like um hand warmer packs where you like you crack them and then you put them in your gloves when it's like super cold. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> That's the interesting like, idea. People put in those in their case and it's like, I don't know if I'd want that. Cause like, what if it like shifts to be like right above like the wood or something, then you're like really heating up this one part of the wood. Well, those actually get surprisingly hot. I mean, there's times when I remember using them when I was skiing and yeah. it's like, ah, oh, my hands are burning. So yeah, I don't think you'd want those to slip around in the case. And my, my scary thing about those would be, well, how do you control how much heat it's giving off? It's just just like you said. I mean, I wouldn't leave my clarinet in a locked hot car. I mean, I don't know if I'd want some sort of pack in there bringing the case up to God knows what temperature. Yeah. So yeah. I've never heard of that. That seems like an interesting. But, you know, th- then again, maybe it's better to have a little pack in there like that than it is to walk around with the case in your back in minus 40. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the only other thing that I would say about, like, humidity is uh, every repair guy in the mountains, like where we live, uh, you know, like Peter Spriggs and the guy at St. John's Music and the guy at Lung McQuaid, they always, so it's, it's always the same story. It's, they moved here from wherever and they never humidified for like 30 years. They never humidified their oboe or their bassoon or their clarinet, whatever. And then they get, they go to Banff for a weekend and their instrument cracks and now they always humidify. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, my a lot of houses here, I don't know if this is typical, but have a humidifier built in. So I actually, in my new house, because we have a piano and also I have guitars and stuff, I, I like to keep it at a healthy humidity for that. 
Um, but it's funny, my humidifier actually failed this last week. And I really noticed because my, my little you know meter showed me, you know, went down from about 40 some odd percent to about 20. I was like, what's going oh. on here? But it turned out it failed. But I actually saw a really interesting product on TV called the Roomidifier, which is it's a Canadian product. Um, it's new. I actually saw it on Dragon's Den, which is kind of like Shark Tank for American listeners. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's like a little thing you plug onto your vent. So even if you don't have a built-in uh, humidifier in your house, you can keep a room of your house at a at a healthy humidity um, without any electricity. It just goes over the vent, and as the vent blows in the winter time, it releases the water, even if just the fan is on without any heat. Oh, that's um, really interesting. Because it um, is. I got, uh, as you know, I have my first child on the way, which is very exciting. Congratulations. And, congratulations. Oh, thanks. And uh, one of the things we have to get for the baby's room is a humidifier. Oh, yeah. You should get one of these. Yeah. No power. <laughs> it's also it's also quiet. It's silent. Oh, that's pretty cool. It's no louder than the furnace. So, yeah, I've been in contact with them, and I it's kind of hard to find. You have to order it online, and then it ships to Home Depot. I don't think you can actually go to the store and buy it. But they make another really cool thing. Um, it's a smaller version that actually just goes on your desk and it looks like a little bulb or something. Um, but it apparently is able to bring up the humid humidity in a small room. Um, so I think it's, you know, perfect for a teaching studio or something and they're about 20 bucks and they go on the desk wow. and, and radiate humidity. I'm, I'm really excited to try it out. I'm, I'm going to order a couple here ASAP. Um, because I, yeah, now that I'm going to get the humidifier in the house fixed anyways, but that seems like a cool kind of thing just to have, in a teaching space where you don't have any control over the humidity and your clarinet's out for six hours a day in it. Yeah. You know? And it would make the, um, it would make the room more pleasant to sit in for the whole day. Well, you know? yeah. And, and people forget about the humidity. Just your basic breathing even is upset by really dry conditions. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, 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 it's an interesting concept. The whole humidity thing is so interesting and it's, it's obviously something that so many instrumentalists have to deal with ranging from violinists to guitarists to, to us. And uh, there's just some compelling solutions out there nowadays. But overall, th- there wasn't much of a debate here. It seemed like most people try to humidify. And, and yeah, uh, I don't think there was anyone who was like, you should not humidify your clarinet. Absolutely <laughs> yeah, not. But the methods were interesting, though. Some people said the orange peels. I mean, these humidity pack things. Um, yeah. you know, I, I chimed in about the house humidifier. and I used to use orange peels in university, um, but uh, I'm a big procrastinator. And so uh, I'd always forget to take them out and then they'd dry up and then they'd kind of like crumble a little bit and make a mess in my case. Well, I had mine inside of like a little pill bottle with some holes poked in it. Oh, Um, that's smart. I just put mine right in there. Well, you know, my problem with them was kind of the same thing. I'd put them in and then I wouldn't, I'd forget to check the humidity after I put them in. And if I'd put in too many, the humidity would get too high. And all of a sudden I, I started to have moldy reeds and a little bit of like that, that fresh orange smell is nice at first, but after a few days it turns into kind of a oh, yeah. musky I, smell. And then, and then it gets moldy. Like an orange peel is an organic thing, right? Yeah. I actually experienced my first moldy reed the other day. Oh, wow. Yeah, this like student, like she was just the sound on her saxophone just was not correct. Like it was just everything about it was off. And I was like, oh, let's check out your read. And I flipped it over and I was like, oh, is this your only read? And she goes, yep. And I go, oh, well, shoot. Because we have like this was on Friday and she had a recital Saturday morning. And I was like, well, I'll be right back. And so I just went to grab the Lysol wipe and I just cleaned the crap out of the back of that read. And gave it back to her. And I was like, yeah, make sure you pick up some new reads tomorrow and then uh, throw this one out. Right away. Uh, yeah, it's like a, a read emergency. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I didn't I didn't really have 
the courage to tell her like this is a moldy reed yeah it can scare some kids but you know it's almost worth scaring them like that's not something that's okay that the mold can be <laughs> well yeah mold can, be, quite, can be harmful right yeah but i was more thinking like man they don't like because the lesson was that like after long McQuaid was uh closed and the recital was before long McQuaid was open Mm-hmm. So I was just like, well, if I tell her it's some moldy read, she's not going to be able to do the recital tomorrow. I'll just clean as much of this mold off as I can. Yeah, and, yeah. Like there was like a like a dime sized pile. That's disgusting. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, it sounds like disgusting. a sounds like a real maintenance lesson was in order after that. Oh yeah, that's yeah. It'll be that and Christmas carols next week. <laughs> <laughs> so that brings me to the final sort of question um, that was debated. Um, on the forum and this was brought up by tony park and uh i don't really want to reference any brand specifically because a few are doing this now but i guess it doesn't matter if we do but the question was like are individually wrapped reads really making a difference um as far as the response and and finding more better reads in the box or not yeah i remember uh a couple years ago you uh were unpacking a box of reeds back in university and you were just you were so angry because you couldn't get the stupid little packages open (laughs) and it was like sean there's like a little slit on like the top you just tear it there and you were just like i don't remember this oh man you were just like oh my god i've been doing this for years how come i've never found this It (laughs) it was so funny um so yeah i don't i don't know about the the packaging i've heard Every everything in the Van Doren pack can be recycled. I've heard that too, and I've also heard that can't be. I mean, I hope it can be recycled. I've been putting it in the recycle bin for probably twenty yeah. years. <laughs> uh, me too. I mean, the the plastic sleeves, I'm pretty sure, are recyclable, and the foil pack, the foil like re- humidified wrapper, should be. Then, of course, the cardboard is, and so the only thing I'd be curious about is uh, the plastic on the outside of the the case or the box. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty of, sure that's still recyclable. No, I think so. I know like if it has like a number, like if the plastic has a number on it with like little recycling arrows around it, you can almost certainly recycle it at least where, where we live. Um, but, uh, I've heard with plastic, if you can stretch the plastic, then you can recycle it. If the plastic doesn't stretch, then you're supposed to throw it in the garbage. Oh man. I had no idea about any of that, but yeah, you know, the environmental, you know, so-called consequence was brought up um, as far as like all the extra packaging and the larger box, which requires, you know, fewer boxes per case to ship or whatever. But I wonder if the, any sort of um, biological consequence would be would be uh, counteracted by the fact that if the reeds perform better, you're going to use fewer of them. Oh, yeah, know? absolutely. I imagine so, it's the shipping is probably the biggest impact. Yeah. Right. Like the I mean, well, you, uh, you saw that picture I posted of like the uh, old, old style, the little plastic like gum pack that holds five reeds. Mm-hmm. Um, so those would have been about, I mean, if a quarter of the size. But, you know, if the reeds are better and they last, you know, four times as long, then I guess the impact would be the same. Well, and Amanda chimed in. And I really loved what she said. She she tells her students when they open the packs, they get to... If they, if, they, if they hold it close, if they hold it close to their face, they can breathe in a little bit of Paris or something like that. And I thought that was kind of kind of uh, cute there for the kids. <laughs> that, that is actually really uh, adorable. But uh, one thing I have found with those humidity packs is the reeds are just spectacular. Like right out, you take them out of that humidity pack, pop it on your clarinet, and it's the most beautiful reed ever. 
and you know you play it for 10 minutes you come back to it the next day and it's the worst thing around but that's you know that's my i guess uh experience with them is this maybe it's because it's so incredibly dry here but it, it seems like it takes the reeds longer to settle into the climate that they're introduced to in this way so i've tried several things in the past and and one of them was just i get a box of reeds i unwrap all of them and let them just sort of um season or age or whatever okay. without the, the the wrappers on there because now, they're in this climate now right yeah now do you soak your reeds in water no i've never gotten into that i i don't know do you yeah, all the time. I've been doing it for years. Oh, really? I should try it. I, yeah. I've had, I've heard a few people talk about it now, but some of the I've heard some people really go into the the sort of almost the mythology of breaking in reeds, and there of course has to be some objectively right way to do it. But I, I think that unfortunately music is somewhat unscientific at times, and we haven't determined the objectively right way to do most yeah. things. Yeah, I mean, I've even heard you know, like when you hold a reed up to the light to see where the you know the thicker and thinner parts of the reed are, and hopefully you get that nice like oval shape of darkness. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. I've I've seen people who swear by that. Every reed goes up to the light, and like they like this one will be the best one. They slap it on there, sounds amazing. And well, you know what's funny about that? The logic behind that is that. Uh, basically the thickness of the reed will allow a certain amount of light through when held up. But there we go again, determining the hardness of the reed by a visual characteristic. <laughs> like, yeah, by it, I don't know it, if that makes any sense logically. Like I understand that it leads to more often theoretically a better reed, but, but wouldn't it also make sense that different cane could be a different stiffness at a different thickness? Yeah. I've heard that uh, reeds at the bottom from the bottom of the plant, like closer to the base of the plant, are harder than reeds from the top of the plant, which would also make sense. Yeah, and the thicker blanks are, are stiffer than the thinner blanks. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and I've seen people who swear that holding it up to the light is the most ridiculous thing you could do. Yeah, every time I've heard an argument about one way about this, I hear the exact same argument from somebody else. <laughs> the opposite way. Yeah. but It uh, always happens. Yeah, I don't know. I remember a long time ago before they switched over the um, to everything being individually packaged, the 56 Rula Pick Reads, the black box of Van Doren's, Yeah, those used to come in uh, a smaller box, like when everything came in a smaller oh, box. Yeah. They came in a different shaped box and you'd like, it'd be like opening like a present, you know, like. Where, it was like, kind of like opening sardines. You like, st- yeah, I remember yeah, opening, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you forgot you'd, about that. You have like this tinfoil thing you'd peel back and those like I remember those reeds were spectacular around then. Yeah, you know, I just I don't know. I uh I've never really I remember when that shift happened. I think it was in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um I can't remember the exact year, but yeah, I me- all I remember really was the boxes got bigger. And then I don't really store the reeds in the box, but one person was sort of saying that one disadvantage is that once you take that wrapper off, now the reeds are shaking around in the box. But my, I don't know why uh, I don't continue to store reeds I'm actively using in the reed no, box. I store old reeds in the reed box. Maybe come back to them a year later or something or, you know, yeah, for time. I can't imagine using the reed box as like a place to keep my reeds. No, um, you should be keeping your reeds in a in a proper reed case, either like glass, you know, like glass a glass reed case would be ideal, where you know, the flat part of the reed is resting against the glass. But you know, if you can't afford that, that the uh, the Rico uh, reed cases are a pretty spectacular second. The Diderio ones, the new Diderio ones. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, the, the, the well, it was Rico when I bought mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they rebranded it, but they're called the I think they're called the Reed Vitalizer case or something. 
Oh, no, um, actually, I think that's a – oh, maybe. Because there's another thing that looks like – do you remember when you, we were oh, yeah, like, yeah. really young and we'd go to the beach and our mom would make us like – or they have like this weird like waterproof like thing where you like twist the lid on and it's just like – it's like a little cylinder. Yes. That, oh, that's right. Those are made in Edmonton actually. Oh, yeah. So uh, yeah. I have a friend who has one of those and she loves it. And apparently some people will put uh, – there's like a sponge in there. And yeah. so you like fill the sponge, like you soak the sponge and some people will use uh, uh, vodka because the alcohol will kill any bacteria and some people will use hydrogen peroxide and some oh, wow. people will just use water. And uh, yeah, apparently it keeps the reeds quite uh, humidified. But my concern with that would be uh, the likelihood of molding. Yeah, again, there's no way to control the humidity and, and the Diderio packs or the Diderio cases and others allow you to control the humidity more accurately. And I know people who keep all their reed cases, they have reed cases that sort of breathe naturally. Um, but then they keep those inside of a box with sort of a humidifier pack in there that will take away and add humidity as needed. So, yeah, I've, um, I've frequently told students that, you know, you have like a terrible reed case that doesn't have like seal from the environment and just throw your reed, your reed case in a Ziploc freezer bag. And just even, even if you don't humidify it, just giving it that one environment, yeah, I think there's again, we're not we're all talking. No one knows the objectively right answer here. But but um, I think that there is some benefit to having a little bit of breathability. Um, I don't know that the, the completely airtight seems like it might get stale in some way to me. Oh, yeah. But the, the Daria, that's what the Daria ones do. They have this rubber gasket around them. Yeah, I guess so. It just seems like there might be a, I think there's like little breathing holes or something on, on those, huh. but, and you can adjust that, of course. I mean, if you want to have, but you know, then the Lomax case though, again, I think that's completely airtight. So yeah, I think this was really interesting. I thank everyone so much for contributing to the Clarinet community there and, uh, posting your thoughts and comments. We're going to be doing the debates every Wednesday and I hope that Andrew will join me once a month to sort of flesh out the ideas that are brought up and, and talk through them. If you have any questions or comments or feedback or or anything, please don't hesitate to comment on the show notes at clarineat.com or you can contact me directly at feedback at clarineat.com. Thanks so much for coming on to debate with me, Andrew. Oh, it was a great t- uh, time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Clarinet Podcast. For free content updates, coupons, and a chance to win giveaways mentioned on the show, please be sure to enter your email address at clarinet.com slash subscribe. The podcast is brought to you in part by the generous support of its listeners. If you'd like to learn how you can help out, please see clarinet.com slash support. Today's episode was brought to you by Dario Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds.